In the 1997 film, The Apostle, starring Robert DeVol, Robert DeVol plays a preacher, a fire and brimstone evangelist, oversees a little congregation, but gets invited to go to these big tent meetings. You remember those? Where they shake the keys of hell, and they ring bells, and they shout. He's a fire and brimstone preacher. But he's also a deeply flawed man. And in a moment of weakness, he loses his temper. And he attacks someone, almost killing them. And in the next scene, we see him in the attic of his mother's home. And he's praying to the Lord. And this is his prayer. I love you, Lord, but I'm mad at you. I love you, Lord, but I'm mad at you. How could you let this happen? How could you let me do this? How, how does this befall me, befell me? Give me peace, Lord. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me peace. I love you, Lord, but I'm mad at you. Now, when we go looking for ways to pray, we sometimes are drawn to certain formulas. Some of you may remember the prayer of Jabez that was popular a number of years ago. It's a kind of name it and claim it prayer, isn't it? It's guaranteed to secure everything from physical health and financial prosperity to the L.A. Rams winning another Super Bowl. Or we might look to the epistles to hear the impressive prayers that Paul was fond of putting in his letters and that sometimes Joe and I pray over you at the end of a service. Now unto him who's able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine by the power of Christ within you, us, to him be glory in Christ and in the church forever and ever and ever. Amen. Or sometimes, in our better moments, we might look to Jesus' example like we already have done today and pray the Lord's Prayer. But rarely are we drawn to the prayer like Robert DeVolt. Rarely are we drawn to the prayer of lament. Yet hear the words of the Lord from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. As we travel through this sermon series called The Story, we have been in these sort of historical books. We've been looking at what Yahweh has been doing and the covenants that Yahweh has been creating and the way that the Israelites have moved towards God and away from God and, and all the sorts of issues and problems and challenges that they have found themselves in. 
And now we come to a new section in Scripture, the Psalms. Now, the Psalms, as many of you know, are like a prayer book or even a hymnal of of Israel's worshiping community. And certainly also the prayer book and the hymnal of our worshiping community as well. Psalms are both corporate, communal, and individual. But it often helps to think about them as communal. Most of the time when the psalmist says, I, the psalmist means us. And many times if the psalmist says, you, the psalmist really means y'all. But did you know that these prayers are poems? These hymns are poetry. They're not history. And they're not like the theology of Romans. They're not like the narratives of the gospel. They're their own genre. They're poems. But that doesn't mean that they don't have powerful lessons for us. The Psalms comfort us. They reorient us towards God and one another. And I want to suggest to you this morning that they can even teach us how to pray. Now, many of you may know that the Psalms have different genres within them. There's different categories that Old Testament theologians argue about. But essentially, three main types of Psalms emerge. There are those that are called Thanksgiving Psalms. Those are pretty easy to spot. There are Petitionary psalms, those are also fairly self-explanatory. But did you know that approximately one-third of all the psalms in Scripture are categorized as laments? Now, laments are that unsettling biblical tradition of prayer that includes expressions of complaint, anger, grief, despair, and even protest to God. In these hymns, the psalmist cries out to God, petitions God, complains to God, calls God to give an account for what God has done, and has the gall to demand an answer. In the words of Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, the psalmist is mad as all get out, and he's not going to take it anymore. And yet it's interesting, isn't it? That we rarely, if ever, hear these important hymns of the church recited or shared on Sunday mornings. People have actually done research examining typical worship books like the Book of Common Prayer and hymnals from churches such as the Lutherans, the Catholics, the Methodists, the Presbyterians. And this research demonstrates that lament psalms are poorly represented in worship. They don't get any airtime. Now, the petitionary psalms and the praise psalms, well, they're okay to use, but not the laments. Now, why would this be? A third of them are laments. Is this because we're too afraid to bring our complaints against the Lord of heaven and earth? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Do we believe that this is inappropriate or perhaps even dangerous behavior? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Or maybe we fear that to complain to God is to risk the holy lightning bolt of judgment. Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. 
Or maybe, maybe we think these are just the cute, antiquated musings of an earlier time that were okay then, but certainly not today. I mean, who are we to question God? How could we presume to ask God to give an account? How could we dare to utter, I love you, God, but I'm mad at you? I'm mad at you. And yet, the Psalms contain all that is human. All the pain, all the joy, all the celebration, and all the delusionment can be found there. Reading the Psalms is a lot like watching the evening news or reading the daily newspaper. All the conditions of humanity can be found there with one major difference. In the Psalms, all the conditions of men and women are addressed to God. Are you with me now? Now, you all know that in addition to me being a part-time pastor and professor, I'm also a clinical psychologist. And in my therapy practice, I've had the opportunity to work with a fair number of couples in couples therapy. Now, one of the, ma- the marriage researchers I have found most helpful in understanding and working with couples is a researcher by the name of John- Dr. John Gottman. You may have heard of him. Dr. Gottman has done extensive research on the factors that predict divorce. And he has been able to successfully predict which couples will divorce with upwards of 90% accuracy. Whew, it's pretty good. Anybody want to go see Dr. Gottman? What he does is he brings these couples into a special laboratory where he hooks them up to EEG machines, right, which measures their heart rate. And galvanic skin response meters, which which measures how much you sweat, And then blood pressure cuffs to see what your blood pressure is doing. And then he puts sensors in the chairs that they sit in so he can detect how much they shift in their seats. And then he videotapes them. Who signs up for these studies? Then when he's got them all hooked up and sitting in the chairs, he says to them, I want you to talk about a conflict you're currently having. So from his work, he has identified four factors that predict marital failure. These factors he appropriately calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You ready for them? They're criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Now, Gottman's research suggests not only what is unhelpful in marriages and subsequently what is helpful, but I believe can teach us something important about all relational communication, even between ourselves and God. Gottman says that fighting and complaining are not bad. That'll blow some of your minds. Fighting and complaining are not bad. What predicts the success of a marriage is not how couples make love, but how couples make war. Complaining, when done well, that is, without criticism. Honey, I don't like when you do this. That's complaining. Why are you such a sloppy mess? That's a, that's a criticism. You follow? When complaining is done well, it's good, for it keeps communication going, and it enables couples to state their needs to one another. But one of the four horsemen, stonewalling, seems to do just the opposite. Stonewalling happens when during an argument, one partner just shuts down. They just stop talking. They literally refuse to talk about it anymore. I'm not going to ask for a testimony. 
Let me ask you a question. Who do you think stonewalls more, men or women? Men, you got it. Men do this more than women. Of course, there are exceptions. Do you know what happens to a woman when her husband stonewalls her? Her measuring equipment goes off the chart. Her blood pressure skyrockets, her heart races, she sweats and starts dancing in her chair. She may do all manner of things and say all manner of things just to try to get him to talk. Can I get an amen? Guess what happens when a woman stonewalls a man? Nothing. Sorry, women. This doesn't seem to work on most men. We're just glad the conversation's over. But stonewalling is so damaging to partner communication because it's not communication. It stops communication dead in its tracks. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that when we are upset with God, or even mad at God, or or let down by God, or frustrated with God, Instead of lamenting, we often stonewall God. We tell ourselves the same thing that partners tell themselves who stonewall their partners. I just don't want to make it worse. We may find sort of elaborate means with which not to deal with our anger and disappointment. But in essence, we're stonewalling God and subsequently, we stop open and honest communication with God. Again, Old Testament Walter Brueggemann suggests that our lives and faith consists of three reoccurring themes. Being securely oriented, being painfully disoriented, and being surprisingly reoriented. Now, we may often long for and try as hard as we can to live in the securely oriented. Amen? We like that place. We may lie to ourselves, uh, others, and even God as we attempt to deny and cover up what we're really feeling and experiencing. The important thing here is that we desperately try to keep things the same, to stay securely oriented. We keep our faith the same, we keep our belief the same, we keep our understanding the same, and we keep God the same in the same little box we've always had him. We stop communicating in order to keep things the same. But this is a problem. As Brueggemann helps us understand, if we are unable to bring our reality, our full lives, our laments, our complaints to God, then we create in our minds a God that we believe is only capable of hearing praise. Did you know that? When we come together, we can only sing praise songs. And not only do we create a false God but we create a false people that can only smile and praise. We create a world in which when someone asks you, hey, how's it going, the only possible socially acceptable answer is fine, how are you? In addition, we may not be able to hear or welcome the voice of someone else in extreme pain. We may close our ears to the voices of whole communities and nations and races of people in pain and suffering and justice. We just don't want to hear it. You're disturbing my peace. I'm securely oriented. You take your problems somewhere else. We marginalize those who don't fit our happy status quo. 
the lament psalm and our prayer of lament is our painful disorientation addressed to God. And as many of the lament psalms demonstrate, this address is often done in community. We communicate to God, and in that address to God, something happens to our disorientation. Of all the lament psalms in Scripture, all but one ends in praise and thanksgiving. All but one. We don't know quite what to do with Psalm 88. You can look it up later. But all the other lament psalms, even 13 that I read to you this morning, hear it again. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. How can the psalmist transition from, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever, to he has been good to me? Now, scholars continue to debate the best explanation for why these lament psalms end in praise. But I have a sense that it is in the very act of lamenting that moves one toward the rebirth of hope. I'm going to say that again. I'm convinced it's in the very act of lamenting that creates the possibility of moving towards the rebirth of hope. Now, I'll never forget a time in my life, and several times, if I'm honest, when things were not going the way that I expected them to, the way I thought they should. Now, I don't mean I got a bad grade or that I was not able to afford the latest something. I mean, I was in a dark place. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I was sad, I was mad, I was furious. So one night in my car, it's always a good safe place to do it, by the way, I let God have it. I let God have it. My words were not near so poetic or near as respectful as the psalmist, I must confess to you. I was a lot more like Robert Duvall in The Apostle. I'm mad at you, God. I remember during this dark time telling a friend that God and I had an arrangement. I'm angry at God, and he just has to deal with it. Not much of an arrangement when you think about it. But in my car that day, I found myself in my own painful disorientation. And as I complained and protested and gave voice to my anger, hurt, and despair, something began to happen. I began to feel the presence of God in a way I had not felt before. For it was in that moment that I realized that maybe we were having one of our first real honest conversations. I was not praying a prayer I'd been taught. I wasn't praying a prayer I thought I should pray. I was praying the prayer of who I was and where I was in that moment. And from that conversation, I slowly began to figure something else out. I was not only lamenting, I was grieving. Now, lamenting is the acknowledgement of loss. Grief is the letting go of that loss. I was certainly lamenting the loss of something that I wanted or needed or thought was rightfully mine, but I was also lamenting that God was not the God who I thought God was supposed to be. And in that address of disorientation to God, something new began to happen. 
As I lamented this fact, I began to grieve the loss of an image of the God that I had created, that I had put in a box. You see, I was angry not just because I had lost something that was mine, but because I wrongfully believed that God's job was to get it back for me. I had God in a box. But I didn't know I did until I gave full voice to my lament. It was only then that I could see and risk maybe letting God out of the box. I was surprisingly reoriented through the process of lament. It's important for you to hear this, friends. My circumstances didn't change, but I did. My circumstances didn't change, but I did. And God did. And we did. Now, some may argue against the prayer of lament. They may say that it feeds our culture of complaint and narcissism. Or maybe that it fosters victimization. Maybe lament demonstrates a, uh, or manifests a lack of faith in God and a lack of submission to God's divine will. Maybe it even undercuts the importance of confession of sin and the prayer of forgiveness. Worse yet, perhaps in a subtle way, it even denies the power of the resurrection and Christian joy. To these arguments, I would suggest that there are times of distress when lament may be the only form of faithfulness we have. Certainly with Christianity, there must be a Good Friday as well as an Easter Sunday. And again, I quote Walter Brueggemann, without the prayer of lament, the other important elements of prayer, praise, thanksgiving, confession, intercession, atrophy, and ring hollow. How can praise be free and joyful if the realities of broken human life are not named and lamented? How can heartfelt thanks be given for healing if the wounds are denied? How can confession of sin be sincere if we turn all sorrow into guilt? How can intercession be strong if our language does not reflect the knowledge of the real sufferings of those for whom we pray? Friends, if the church truly hopes to be a story-shaped community, then we must have a story that allows for and even welcomes lament. For it's a community that can validate and help give form to the grief because we don't do it alone. Most importantly, hope itself is grounded in relationship. If we don't encourage lament, not only do we risk creating a false god and a false people, we lose an important means of moving from disorientation to reorientation. And here's one more added and important issue. Central. I believe God is moved on our behalf by our lament. How many gods can you say that about? Our God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, and Esther, the God of Israel, is moved by our lament. How do we know? Because he's always been moved by the cries of his people throughout all of Scripture. You've been hearing it, right? He's not angered by the cries of his people. 
Yahweh hears Abel's blood cry from the ground. He hears the groans of the Israelites in, in Egypt and the desert. The prophets continually note how Yahweh hears their cries of pain and confession. He does not turn his back on his own when they demand that he gives an account. He hears the cries of his people finally culminating in his coming near us in the very form of Jesus Christ. In the Holy Spirit. And even in our best days. In one another. How long, O oh Lord, he has been good to me. There was another who was unafraid to pray the prayer of lament. He actually spoke the words of Psalm 22. Though perhaps he was too weak to finish it, he began it. Perhaps you can remember it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or in Brad's translation, where are you now? Where are you now? Come close. I invite you as you hear this song and as we move toward communion to maybe risk your own lament prayer today. Raise it to the God who hears and cares and knows and is moved.
gather around this table this morning. Friends, this is how God comes close. This is the ritual of remembrance where we can hold the pain and the suffering and the lament and the grief and remember that God comes close. Lord, we ask you to bless this bread and cup. As we take it in just a few moments, may you touch your people. Not to remove their feelings, their pain, their suffering, but to reorient them in a new kind of way. To remind them in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of lament, you are present and you are there. That you are good. night that Jesus was betrayed he took the bread and he broke it he said this is how you know I'm good this is where I can be found whenever you take this do so in remembrance of me break and take together after supper he took the cup he said, this is how you know I'm good. This is my blood poured out for you, the new covenant. This is where you will find me. Whenever you take this, do so in remembrance of me. Take and drink.
I invite you to stand, my friends. Receive this benediction. None to all of you who are lamenting and grieving and struggling and maybe even angry with God. The power of God is still at work within you. And to him be praise in Christ Jesus and the church for all generations to come. And all God's people said, amen. Go in grace and peace.